You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. So how's everyone doing? Good, good. I need some, you know, audible response to make me feel encouraged this morning and make sure everyone's awake. So everyone's doing good. Just so you know, my name's Josh McKay. I know my dad mentioned it earlier, but uh, I'm uh, one of the um, staff volunteers here in our youth ministry. I'm also a seminary student, so they're kind of giving some of us who are going through seminary some opportunity to have some practical ministry experience. And so this morning you get to uh, suffer the consequences of that. But you can just give me a little bit of grace. <laughs> um, so this morning we're continuing our series in the Upside Down Life. It was alluded to earlier. That's why we have the upside down furniture on the ceiling here. It's all to get us thinking about how we can passionately pursue Jesus and how that can happen in a way that um, is contrary to popular belief, contrary to the way that the world views things. Because the kingdom of God is really something um, that's so different from anything we've experienced in our culture in our own personal points of view. That's why it's important for us to lean on God's word and understanding of Jesus for us to realign our ideas about um, the world around us and about how we're meant to interact that. This past series, we've looked at how we find our sufficiency in Jesus, how we find our identity, our provision, our joy. And even last week, uh, as Ron spoke, we found how we find our our promise in Jesus. This morning, we're continuing um, that same theme where we look to Jesus for our satisfaction. And especially, we're going to be looking about um, how Jesus satisfies more than our expectations and how he shapes our expectations rightly. So how many of you have ever had expectations fall short of what reality is? Or rather, that you had too high of expectations, reality falls short of it. This happens to me all the time. I mean, maybe it's, you have a wonderful dinner planned. And you're expecting that, that something is going to come great, if it's going to look awesome, but then it just does not taste very good. Or maybe you have an exciting evening that you're planning to go out, and it just totally flops. Or maybe you really wanted to grow a mustache, and it didn't really look so good, and that's not a personal experience at all. <laughs> but I, I really had one of these experiences last year, and it was, I mean, it's going to be a nerdy one, so I'm, I'm being vulnerable with you guys. But how many of you have ever heard of the book The Hobbit? Yes, there's a movie, The Hobbit, too, but before that, there was a book. And in my opinion, the, mo- or the book was much better. But really, it, it's my favorite book. I've read it probably like five or six times from when I was in junior high till now, and I, I really can't get enough of it. I'm sure you have some, something that you're a fan of that much. But for me, I was so excited because I heard about a year ago that they were coming out with a Hobbit movie. And this movie, you know, I see the, the trailers of it coming up to it, and I was getting so excited about it. My expectations were going through the roof. I didn't even really realize it, but I mean, my wife can attest that I probably watched the trailer so many times that I put in more time watching trailers than the actual three-hour movie. So that just gives you a picture of how excited I was for this. When the time came to see the movie, you know, like a good uh, Tolkienite, which is someone who loves the Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, or if you prefer the term Tolkienist, maybe even a ringer. Um, either way, I went and saw the movie on opening night. And... To be honest with you, I was grossly underwhelmed by the movie. I didn't like it. I was bummed because the book was so good, and I felt like they didn't capture all the the greatness of the book that I love so much. So my expectations of the movie were not met by reality. 
And a lot of this happened subconsciously because I wasn't aware of what I expected from the movie until I actually went and saw the reality of it. So this morning, on a much greater scale, with much more importance, we're going to be talking about expectations of our Lord Jesus and how we have conscious expectations and subconscious expectations and what happens when our expectations are not met. But first, let me start by saying a point to make it clear. It's okay when we're talking about our expectations not being met by something that we have, you know, like a movie or something that we enjoy, a dinner, you know, where something that doesn't meet it is clearly the, the one meeting the expectations fault. But when we're talking about Jesus not meeting our expectations, it's a completely different scenario. Because Jesus is one who is born perfect without sin. Whereas us, we were born into sin. We inherited it. It means we're not perfect. So from the get-go, our expectations are going to be distorted because we're born in an imperfect world. So in regards to expectations and feeling like Jesus hasn't met them, it has nothing to do with the Lord falling short. But it has to do with our perception needing to be realigned in our hearts. We need to look at things more rightly. We need to look at things upside down in comparison to how the world looks at things. We need to be reshaped in order to have the perspective of the kingdom of God. So we will look this morning at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 11 and see how we're meant to flip our understanding upside down in order to ultimately see that Jesus has already satisfied the greatest needs in our lives and how because of that, he's exceeding all expectations. So just keep that in mind as we start to walk through the passage this morning. But would you pray with me to begin with? Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to have your word, um, to lean on that, to learn from that. We ask that you would be present this morning, um, just speaking through your word. Allow for us to be reading it rightly, interpreting it rightly, and doing so in a way that's honoring to you. Um, let us make, push ourselves aside, Lord, and allow for your spirit to do work in our hearts. Uh, we love you, Father, and just ask for you to be present during this time. Allow for it to be all about you, not about us. We love you. Amen. Um, so if you open up your Bibles to Matthew 11, if you have one, if you'd like a Bible, uh, we have ushers that are more than willing to, to lend you a loaner Bible for the service. Uh, just raise your hand and they'll pass one out to you. They're walking down right now. And then all you need to do is just leave it on your seat afterwards and uh, it will go back to the right place. But if you open your Bible to Matthew 11, we're going to start in chap- or verse 1 of chapter 11. I'm going to read through kind of quickly because we have a large passage this morning. Um, and I think in order to, to read these 19 verses that we're going to read, Uh, We need to do so quickly, but uh, I think it gives good breadth to what we're going to be talking about this morning to give the full picture as opposed to just a couple verses. So um, bear with me as we read through real quickly, but um, we'll unpack it as we go. So in verse 1 it says, After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went out from there, went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, speaking of John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed that swayed by the wind? If not, you go, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. 
Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one who is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, born among, among men and women, there is none who has risen greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and law have prophesied until John. If you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. To what can, shall I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the market, marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they said to him, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said of him, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So I know that was a large section of scripture, but we're going to be unpacking it kind of verse by verse and explaining how that pertains to our topic this morning. Um, In this passage, John the Baptist poses an interesting question to Jesus. First of all, we know that John the Baptist is in prison. Um, And through extra biblical writings, we can see that John is in King Herod's prison. John asks Jesus if he's the expected one, if he's the one that they were expecting to come to be the Messiah if he was the Christ. This seems to kind of give us a clue, uh, first of all, in verse 2, that Matthew, the author of this chapter and of this book in the Bible, mentions he heard about the deeds of the Messiah and he sent sent his disciples to ask him. So already from from the beginning of this, this passage, Matthew wants to assert that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's interesting that John asks if he's the Messiah because Matthew wants to make it clear from the get-go, and maybe that gives us a clue that this passage isn't necessarily about whether or not Jesus is the, the Messiah. It's more to do about their interaction and processing through that. So what do we make of John's question then? If we're meant to see how they're processing through that, what do we make of John's question? Is he beginning to doubt that Jesus is the Messiah? Is he growing weary because he's in prison? Does he really not think that Jesus was the promised Messiah? I mean, if we look at these extra-biblical accounts of, of the fact that um, John the Baptist was in King Herod's prison, we also know that, even from the Bible, that, that King Herod was an evil man. He sentenced to kill the firstborn sons. He eventually, we, we learn later in the book of Matthew, that he cut off John the Baptist's head at the request of his daughter. It's a twisted and, and sick household with, with, the king, with King Herod. He was not living for the Lord. He was an evil man for evil purposes. So could these circumstances be weighing heavy on him? Being in prison is obviously an uncomfortable place, let alone King Herod's prison. But on the other hand, also, if we know a little bit about John the Baptist, which we can look in in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist was a disciple, or rather a prophet, who had lived his whole life disciplining himself against physical comforts. He didn't indulge in pleasures specifically for spiritual purposes. He lived in the desert, and it says he ate locusts and wild honey, and he wore camel skin clothing. I mean, none of that seems like the Ritz-Carlton. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a nice, comfortable lifestyle for him. I wouldn't necessarily say then that being in prison was pushing him so far out of his comfort that he grew uncharacteristic doubting. And because of that, it kind of seems more likely 
as we continue to look at the passage that maybe John was just confused. Even in that question, are you, are you the expected one or should, should we expect another? It shows that John was confused with what was going on. It's not necessarily that he didn't think Jesus was the son of God. His question kind of carries about more than meaning, are you the kind of Messiah we thought you were going to be? Or are we totally off base here? Because remember also, if we look in Matthew chapter 3, that John heard the audible confirmation of a voice from heaven being God, that Jesus was the son of God. It says in, in um, Matthew chapter 3 that the spirit of God descended after John baptized Jesus, descended upon Jesus and said with a voice, this is my son who I'm well pleased. I think it'd be hard to shake that out of my head if I had experienced that. Not to mention John the Baptist saw Jesus in one account. It says he mentioned, behold, the Lamb of God is coming. Mentioning to Jesus coming to him physically right there. Using that name, the Lamb of God in Hebrew culture was synonymous for the name of the Messiah. So John knew. He really must have known that Jesus was the Messiah. So why the question? If we look back again at Matthew 3, and I encourage you in your own time this week, Matthew 3 is a great contextual passage for us to kind of compare to what we're looking at this morning. So I encourage you to read the whole, the whole chapter in your own uh, Bible studies this week. It gives you good, good um, feedback and background. But in Matthew 3, 10 through 12 specifically, John's prophesying about what the Messiah will do when he comes. So this gives us an idea of what John's expectations were. In t- verse 10 it says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming is mightier than I, of whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is at hand. He will, clearly, he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. I mean, the language here that he's talking about the coming Messiah is all about impending judgment. So we understand that John's prophecies have largely to do with the impending judgment that comes with the Messiah. That gives us light into his expectation. I mean, someone coming to chop down trees that don't bear fruit, yeesh, that's, a, that's some pretty harsh metaphors to talk about the Messiah. It's not necessarily a um, soft-hearted ministry. But you can kind of maybe begin to see the problem that John might be having in his expectations. Because if we look at what Jesus' ministry was up until this point in Matthew 11, the 10 chapters before in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the account of Jesus on earth, we can see that largely Jesus' ministry had to do with healing people and teaching. That's hardly to do with judgment. Hardly to do with bringing the axe. So we can understand John's confusion. It wasn't cutting down dead trees. It was more about teaching and healing, bringing those signs of the coming Messiah. So we can see here that John had skewed expectations of Jesus. That's your first point in your outline if you're following along. John had skewed expectations of Jesus. It wasn't that John didn't trust Jesus. He had just formed expectations while he was anticipating Jesus to come. Once Jesus had started his ministry, his anticipation grew so large, but his expectations were not met in that way. And unlike my experience with the Hobbit movie that I was mentioning earlier, 
John's misguided expectations were not at the fault of the one meeting the expectations. They were not at the fault of Jesus. The reason the expectations were not met was because his perceptions weren't aligned with the reality of the kingdom and the Lord's plan. We'll explain this a little bit more later and we'll unpack that more fully, but let's look at Jesus' response and see how that gives light uh, as well. Jesus responded to him by saying, go back and report to John what you've heard and seen. The blind have received uh, sight. The lame have walked. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is a response um, that's kind of a hybrid quotation of a couple different prophecies in Isaiah. Specifically, if you want to write down in your notes, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. That's where Jesus is pulling this language from. And because those, those prophecies had to do with the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah the prophet prophesied about the Savior that was going to come to Israel and the things that were going to happen when the Savior came. So Isaiah 35 and 61 is what he's quoting here. These passages mention in Isaiah that the blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, the gospel will be proclaimed, good news to the poor. So in a roundabout way, Jesus is kind of repeating that prophecy to answer John's question. Saying, look, these things are happening in my ministry as well. But it's interesting too to note that in those passages in Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 61, there's also a sense of freedom for prisoners. Freedom for those who are in captive. Relief. It's particularly interesting because John's in prison right now. So why did Jesus leave that part of of the kingdom of God out? Why didn't he say to John, you know, the, the prisoners will be set free? Wouldn't that have been good encouragement to him? Well, we can either think it was maybe an oversight on Jesus' part or a purposeful uh, omission. And I think it was a purposeful omission. Maybe he was trying to say to John, and eventually we find out as we continue to read the book of Matthew, that he wasn't going to make it out of prison. He wasn't going to realize the full fruition of the kingdom of God quite yet. Parts of it were being inaugurated. Parts of it were being brought in, but not the fullness of it. He wasn't going to have release from his bondage quite yet. Jesus knew that John had misguided expectations. But just so you know, John wasn't the only one that Jesus addresses in this passage. There was a few other examples that he gave of people's expectations as well. Because ultimately, and this is your second point, having misguided expectations causes dissatisfaction in our lives. When there was a gap between my expectations of what the Hobbit movie would be and what it actually was, that caused an intense dissatisfaction in my life. It left a little hole in my heart. But on a much larger and more authentic scale, when there's a disparaging difference between our expectations of Jesus and the reality of who he is, it causes us to be spiritually dissatisfied, whether we know it or not. Or more correctly, maybe that misperception does not allow for us to realize that Jesus fully satisfies. In verse 16 of Matthew 11, Jesus points out the fickle expectations of the current generation. He says that they're like children. He says, to what shall I compare this generation? They are children sitting in a marketplace and calling out to others, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. He's talking that they're immature. They're immature in their expectations. Just like a child that's immature in their expectations. 
a child that maybe that cries automatically so that they'll get picked up. You know, it's common for a child to do. It's okay for a child to do, but these are grown adults that are having immature expectations of who Jesus is. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. We played the flute and you didn't dance. Those are just ways to say, we did this, but you didn't do that. We did A and you didn't do B. Because this generation's expectation that Jesus is addressing is cause and effect related. If we do this, then our God will do that. It's like, maybe when you have expectations in your own spiritual life, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I follow God faithfully, then my life will be good. Bad things won't happen to me. But we need to change our perspective and we need to realign our perspective so that our expectations are the way that God has intended them to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus even mentions that people like the Pharisees or uh, people around this generation were dissatisfied in the way that Jesus was acting towards them. They didn't like that he drank wine or that he was friends of sinners. So they called him a drunkard and as an insult called him a friend of sinners. They're expressing their dissatisfaction towards him and the kind of person he turned out to be. And this happened because their expectations of who he was were upside down than the reality. In verse 20 and 20 to 24, he continues and talks about how some cities that Jesus went to and did miracles didn't repent from their ways. Obviously, they weren't moved if they didn't repent from their original sinful ways. And we know this, I mean, mostly just because they're called unrepentant cities. That's what they're known for. That's what they're mentioned in the Bible. This shows they weren't compelled by the great and wonderful acts of the kingdom of God. Or that wasn't enough for them. I mean, it even notes here that in some of these areas, Jesus did more miraculous signs than in others. Yet these people didn't buy into it. It seems that Jesus is pointing out here something similar to what John the Baptist was experiencing, something similar to what the current generation is experiencing, and maybe even what you're experiencing in your own life. Our expectations of who Jesus is and how he interacts in our life, their expectations of how Jesus was and how he interacted in their lives, wasn't meeting the reality. And we can see that these cities that Jesus denounces were dissatisfied and probably in this situation didn't notice it, didn't understand it. That's why they didn't repent of it. Denouncing cities means to, that Jesus declared great judgment upon them later. When Jesus says, woe to you, O Chorazin, he's saying, you guys are in a bad shape right now. Something bad is going to be coming to you. I mean, talk about dissatisfaction if the Lord says, woe to you. But this is where that dissatisfaction, they probably didn't even realize it. All of this to say, once we've understood that John the Baptist may have had misguided expectations and that caused dissatisfaction and confusion in his life, just as this generation that Jesus is talking to expected Jesus to do this for them when he didn't, just like all these cities that didn't repent, all of this is to say that sometimes we have skewed expectations of our Lord, skewed expectations of the person that he's supposed to interact in our lives as. It's so easy in our world and culture to look at Jesus through the lens of 
our society, our own preconceived notions. And a lot of times we don't even realize that we're doing it. It's called a cultural lens. It's like we're looking at Jesus through the lens of our world. Automatically, we're starting with the wrong outlook, though. We need to be looking at Jesus through the lens of his word. His word is truth. His word is useful for teaching. His word is useful for hearing him speak. That's why it's called his word. So I have a huge personal tendency in my own life, just like I mentioned with my uh, (laughs) expectations of the movie. I build things up in my mind a lot. I build things up of how I expect they should be. And sometimes that causes me to be disappointed. And especially in my spiritual life, I do this all the time. I constantly think that God should act towards me in a certain way because I'm acting for him in a certain way. It's completely skewed. But one of the ways that this played out is I went to Biola for my undergraduate degree. Biola is a Bible Institute of Los Angeles. It's over in La Mirada. And it is um, a Bible school. It's a Bible university. And I got my degree in biblical studies. And I felt compelled to do that. I felt called to do that by God. And I was kind of expecting at the end of the four years that I would be there, that I would kind of have a ministry job lined up, you know, that it would be fairly easy for me to transition into. Um, Well, let me tell you, I'm like three or four years removed from that right now and (laughs) don't have a ministry job. So um, ultimately, my expectations of, of occupation were high. I expected that God would do that because I felt like, well, I'm doing this. I'm spending, you know, going into debt a little bit for, for school. For you, Lord, I, I, you might as well give me a job for it. <laughs> but it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened quite yet. Not a ministry job, not something that's consistent, but you know what? The Lord's plan is different for me. So what's happening? Why do I have these expectations? Why am I disaligned and I need to be realigned in my expectations towards the Lord? How are, how are my expectations meant to be realigned? How can I properly view Jesus? Uh, if you guys would continue and open up your, your Bibles still to Matthew eleven twenty five through 30. We'll finish that passage. I really think that this, this chapter, Matthew 11, is Jesus talking about expectations of the kingdom of God, expectations of himself, and how people respond to that. And ultimately, I think he kind of gives a glimpse of, of one answer, how we realign our expectations. Jesus says in um, Matthew 25, I thank you, Father. This is Jesus speaking out loud. He's still in front of people. He's still teaching. I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So ultimately, we can understand that Jesus' his plan, his mode of operation, who he is, is different than, you know, even the wise think. So that's a little bit of a comfort that he's purposely hiding that from us for some reason. And I think it's ultimately so that we'll lean on him for understanding and not on ourselves. He continues and says, Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. It was your purpose, Lord, in in, uh, hiding these things from the wise and revealing them to little children. And all of these things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus continues. And no one except the Son um, knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses... Uh, to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for your souls. 
My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, God has some hidden plans in the way that he acts towards us. He hides them from the wise and he reveals them to children. Such is the way in the kingdom of God. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense to us logically. Why would he reveal the secrets of the kingdom of God to little children, but not to the wise and um, older generation? Ultimately, I think Jesus mentions here that the way that we refocus and look at, the, uh, look at the world, look at Jesus through a biblical perspective is to lean on him, to rest in him, to learn from him and take on his light burden, to come to him. You see, resting in Jesus means resting in his grace. We have this problem in our lives of sin and we don't even realize how great and huge the gap is of that sin. The problem is of that sin. We don't weigh it in our daily lives as something of importance. That's why we're more preoccupied with our jobs, our, our occupation, our, our finances, our well-being, our family, our friends. All of those things weigh heavy in our lives. They're important to us. But how many times a day do you think about the vastness of your own sin? How many times a day do you sit there and think, the Lord's grace has washed over me and cleansed me from the biggest debt I've ever had in my life? That's the reality of resting in Jesus is realizing and sitting in the grace that he's given us. Realizing in fullness and remembering and pondering the fact that he has saved us from our sins. Jesus died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty for our sins in our life anymore. When we rest in Jesus, we rest in his grace. We understand his grace. Jesus causes us to think differently about the things around us because when we realize the fullness and the vastness of God's grace through Jesus in our lives, we understand that he has paid the penalty for the most important thing in our lives, for the most important reason in our lives, to be reunited with God. That's the biggest and pressing need in our lives, to be reunited with God. So when we understand that God's already done that in our lives. He's already satisfied us in that way. Then everything else pales in comparison. Our physical needs, our emotional needs are already met because we have been offered, we've been offered freedom from our sins. That helps change our perspective when we know that the most important thing in our life has been taken care of. That helps us to realize our expectations for what Jesus should do in our lives is next to nothing because he's already d- done everything in our lives by saving us from our sin. It's not that those things aren't still important to provide for your family and to, to have relationships and to, um, to work to, you know, to provide. Those things are important. But in comparison to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, it's nothing. So you can see here how our expectations are, it's a misperception. If we're worried that God should do something like, you know, like give me a job in my life, I'm thinking at things in a wrong way. I'm looking at things through my own cultural perspective because it makes sense to get a job after you go out, out, out of college. But in the kingdom of God, there's a different order of importance. Number one, reuniting us with the Lord so that we can give him praise. Jesus does that through his work on the cross. So this is what we're, we're talking about this morning. This is what I think Matthew 11 is touching on. 
that as the kingdom of God is here and present now, and still coming to its fruition when Jesus returns, we are meant to lean on Jesus, rest in him to realign our expectations, realign our priorities and our perspective so that when we do that, we can realize how Jesus has already satisfied the most pressing need in our lives. He's already satisfied the biggest gaping need in our lives. And when we do that, our other expectations and priorities will fall in line after that. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this morning, and I just thank you for uh, what a great, um, what a great thing it is to look into your word and to continue to try to understand it better so that we can understand you better. Lord, we thank you for the way that you've satisfied our most pressing need of, of, of reuniting us with the Father, and you've taken care of our sin in our lives. Lord, and I ask that um, for those of us who know that fully, that we would rest in that each day. We would be re-reminded constantly of the fact that you've given us such a great gift and grace. And those other things in our life um, pale in comparison. Those other worries or other expectations in our life pale in comparison. And Lord, ultimately that we would be realizing that you satisfy all of our needs. In your name we pray. Amen.